Welcome to the Thinking God Podcast, a place where we take hope and truth wherever we can find it. Uh, this week, I talked to Neil Allen, and I first discovered Neil Allen when I came across his book, Shapes of Truth. Allen, whose lifelong spiritual path includes learning how to live without a strategy, and a strategy that had seemed interesting to him a few years earlier, he decided instead to favor learning to live without beliefs. And he admits that it is a much weirder and harder path. And I found his book both challenging, since it offered ideas which were new to me, though your mileage may vary depending on your background. But even though some of the exercises in the book were not really available to me because I simply could not find anyone willing to give them a go, and they do require another person. There were some powerful truths that Alan lays out in his new book that still resonate with me and I'm still pondering and I really appreciate what he put down there. His Eastern approach to truth um, and matters of faith make for an enriched and layered story and even more so since he is married to the admittedly Jesus author and Christian Anne Lamott. This conversation between two old guys who have covered a lot of spiritual territory over the past six decades or so was one I did not want to end and I enjoyed talking to Neil. All right. Well, I want to start with your own your own path. Do you remember the first time you became interested in anything spiritual, concepts, inner life, any of those kind of things? Yeah, I, it came to me very late in life. I was a um, hyper rationalist, uh, perfectly happy. Um, most people come into a spiritual life with a complaint, and I actually didn't have a complaint, but. I was getting out of a failed marriage and uh, went to a, um, uh, a therapist, not to um, deal with a crisis, but to try to optimize my life. And uh, something about that opened um, a door. And the door was that he started to uh, work with me on my identities. And I, I didn't know it, but he had actually not only studied with Fritz Perls, who was one of the um, founders of uh, Gestalt psychotherapy, but also Carl Rogers, who was the founder of positive psychology. Um, but he had also studied uh, with some spiritual masters. He had sat with Krishnamurti, and he had sat for a long time with uh, in the Rajneesh movement with the guy who became Osho. Um, and uh, during that time, he actually rose in their ranks. And I believe Bob, uh, who was known as Swami Prem um, Abhitab, um, I believe he kind of headed their psychology unit, which was um, uh, kind of uh, built out of the whole Esalen Gestalt uh, encounter movement, really. And uh, he just quietly brought those tools with him without letting me know that that's what he was doing. I started to dismantle some identities and some roles and see that I could live without them. And the next thing I knew, I was sitting in a room with a bunch of people meditating. And uh, that was weird for me. Um, anybody who 
can remember the first time they meditated in a room full of people with their eyes closed being quiet may relate to the the idea that this was a very strange experience for me at 52 or 53 or maybe maybe even older years old and uh, the guy sitting in the front of the room while our eyes were closed was the modern master named Adyashanti and he while my eyes were closed, I, I had kind of this miraculous happenstance where I had the sensation that he had tugged my soul out of me, had kind of scanned it, and it returned it to me. Now, this isn't something that Adyashanti does, and I imagined it in one sense, but I also knew that it had really happened. And that was a stunning notion to me that uh, whatever it meant, this weird supernatural thing had happened to me, and it and it opened my opened my thoughts, opened my imagination, and opened my heart to the idea that maybe there were things interesting to explore that were outside of the rational world. That and, is a dramatic pivot from rationalism to somebody pulling your soul out and putting it back in. I mean, that's a pretty dramatic story. It really was. And uh, the funniest part of it was that I was, I had no sense that I was missing something up to that point. And in fact, the next thing that um, my therapist, Bob Birnbaum did, Swami Paramahamitab did was encouraged me to read a book that had just come out that year or the year before, uh, Eckhart Tolle's A New Earth. And the, what, what was funny about reading A New Earth for somebody like me was A New Earth is, if you haven't read it, it's a, it's a kind of um, Americanized uh, uh, Eastern view. And with the Eastern view being that we live in suffering and that the answer to suffering is to let go of attachment to things. And most of the book is devoted to showing how we live in suffering. And for me, that was revelatory. I had no idea I suffered all the time until I read that book, which is maybe he cursed me or maybe he revealed something to me. But Eckhart Tolle told me something that I decided I should deal with. And uh, so I started exploring my suffering. Meanwhile, I was doing identity work. I was doing emotional work. I was doing attachment work. And pretty soon I was just whole hog into the uh, what at first looks like a quest for more and uh, uh, an ambitious uh, search for uh, a different kind of truth and for God and for consciousness and all sorts of things. And I read lots of things and I joined the Diamond Heart or Diamond Approach organization, which is a mystery school and learning all sorts of things and and reading Hinduism and uh, Buddhism and Sufism and New Age books and just I just went whole hog into it. And, well, and just re- in, in your recent book, Reading in There, it sounds like you're still diving into the deep end. I, I don't know many folks in our age group, you and I are roughly the same age, who are learning Sanskrit. Yeah, that was a mistake. 
<laughs> Listen, I got to admit, I wanted to say somewhere early on in this that in the book, you had me at your confession of being garrulous and a know-it-all because it always warms my heart to find another member of my tribe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Going, to, going back to school was an interesting um, mistake, and, uh, uh, but I, you know, I got to explore and clear away some things that I had done a lot of work on already in most avenues of my life. It's just school is a whole different trip because there's an authority figure and there's a competition for who's smartest in the room. And those trigger everything about my childhood um, of growing up as a know-it-all in a family of know-it-alls. And so I had to deal with all of that. The, the interesting thing to me about it was if I hadn't gone back to school, I probably wouldn't have had to deal with it because it, it, it's kind of a corner of that um, know-it-all issue, the narcissistic personality issue, that um, wouldn't have that wouldn't have needed clearing up because I, I'm just not in that situation normally in my life. I'm not in a room full of people who are competing for who's the smartest person with the stakes being uh, academic success. Uh, and so it, in, in a way, it, it's one of the very few things in my life where I do look at it and go, I didn't need to do that. But what it taught me, among other things, is um, it reinforced my sense that uh, I'm the sort of person who does not need to hear people uh, telling me to be a lifelong learner or to learn something new or any of those sorts of claims that if I don't uh, master something new in my life, I'm going to somehow uh, uh, fade away. And I'm pretty sure that some time ago, I finished my masteries and that I'm able to use them now as my canoes in the river and my paddling skills in the river. And if you if you watch a, a really good river guide with a uh, with a canoe full of people and and packs and stuff, they're barely spending any effort on guiding the canoe and they're spending all their time enjoying watching the otters and the egrets on the banks of the river. And that's what I think my masteries are for. And, and the, the getting of a mastery is painful and requires a sense of virtuosity or goals and those sorts of things. The, the using of a mastery should be easy and fun and I don't need any more. I don't know who said this. I don't remember the, quote, the exact quote, but something along the lines of uh, curiosity is one of the highest forms of wisdom. Uh, that, that idea that it's not an accomplishment, it's, it's an ongoing just part of who you are as natural. It's like you're saying, the, the guide in the river. Yeah. Everything starts with curiosity, right? If you think about it, every thought, every project, everything, all curiosity is is uh, pulling something close to examine it and decide whether you're going to put it in the next puzzle that you're solving. And, and that puzzle may be to come to a complete idea or thought, or that puzzle might be a work project, or that puzzle might be uh, getting along better with your partner, or that puzzle might be uh, remembering how to drive a stick shift, right? right. The, the first step is always to look around and see what you've got. And in that sense, 
we go through life as three-year-olds, right, or two-year-olds who are simply pulling that bright object close and licking it and grasping it and tossing it and, and manipulating it in the close proximate field and, and basically equating I want and uh, I'm curious and feeling the feeling of joy that accompanies pure, simple curiosity, the beginning of everything. In this book, uh, you, you seem to hold out a hand to all spiritual traditions, since truth seems to resonate wherever it lands. But um, it looks like you're just you defy sort of picking a team. You, you you've got your sticks in a lot of different fires, so to speak. Is that fair uh, to say? I think that's fair to say, um, and that that's actually got a lot to do, I think, in the end with. Well, first of all, I went to I. I I've always valued eclecticism. I went to um, a college when you know when I was a teenager. I, I started college in a, and it was in a in a college that's got what it's called the Great Books um, program, and that encouraged and forced me to read all sorts of different philosophers and and uh, fiction writers and mathematicians and physicists uh, and biologists uh, uh, who had all sorts of different views and and appreciate that in their time and place within the context of what they knew and what they were doing they were all um, excited and exciting explorers to learn along with and it, it gave me an appreciation for the fact that I don't have to uh, pick a winner all the time. I can just enjoy the um, and appreciate the 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 ability that I have uh, to to go uh, get taken into different worlds by different kinds of authors and different um, paths. I then lucked into uh, after meeting uh, Bob Birnbaum. I lucked into this mystery school that is as eclectic as can be. So the, the guy who founded the mystery school called um, Ridwan or Diamond Approach or Diamond Heart, a guy named Hamid Ali, who, who um, my book, Shapes of Truth, um, is uh, written really for an appreciation and to show off some of the things that he taught me. Um, he. Uh, he noticed, well, the simple way to look at Hamid is that he is the what William James was to religions, Hamid is to spiritual paths. So William James uh, famously wrote the um, uh, studied of uh, all that he could find human religions and found what was common and uncommon about them and called the varieties of mm -hmm. religious experience. What Hamid has done over the course of the last 40 or 50 years is do the same sort of thing with all the spiritual movements that are alive and some that are, well, all of them are still alive in some form or another that he studied, I suppose, from shamanism and tribalism and all sorts of, you know, sort of oddball, small niche uh, paths through the major ones of Hinduism and Islam and Christianity and Judaism and Buddhism and Sufism and Taoism and uh, the the New Age thinkers of the 20th century, and 
and he explored them and in a not in a bookish way but he experienced each of them in order to get the sensory experience that you're taken to with each of them and i think he would agree that what he found was they all lead to uh, a handful four or five one of four or five um uh, metaphysical states so uh, Hinduism leads to uh, a Brahman uh, sense of absorption into a unity. Well, that's a metaphysical state that I can go and visit by doing certain exercises and spend time in. Then there's a metaphysical state of, um, of uh, Buddhism in which I can explore the world of observable things as is without being uh, having skin in the game, without uh, caring about them. It's, uh, I can watch it unfold in front of my face and just kind of enjoy the view. And uh, that's a metaphysical state that I can put myself in. There are states of samadhi that are kind of uh, uh, attached to either of those two states, but there, there's generally four or five um, well-known metaphysical uh, states that you can enter and spend time with, and that and that these paths end up pointing to the one in the common uh, Christians end up in a field of love, right? And so you end up in loving kindness or a field of love or something that feels as if you have a commonality and empathy and uh, an ability to be unseparated but aware of the loveliness of a flower or a person sitting next to you. I think these are not intended to be places to land and live in. I think they're places to visit uh, and that their main purpose is when I return to my familiar metaphysics of this is a table and what you see is what you get, which uh, uh, an academic might call materialist empiricism, the, the, the metaphysics that we've all agreed on um, as humans uh, who write about such things and talk about such things um, is where we live. It just feels lighter if I've noticed that, well, it's not arbitrary that I live in materialist empiricism, it may be this is how human beings are intended to live. It isn't necessary. I can spend time in a different set of metaphysical conditions. That alone lightens my load in this world because my load is built on the fact that I'm tied down with a feeling that I have to maintain the structures that I've defined to be important around me. And that's what Buddhists call attachment, um, what Hindus might call maya, uh, what um, psychologists um, uh, might might call obsession. And we're, we, we want to lighten that up. And if I lighten that up, I'm allowed to open my eyes wider and see beyond uh, the, the very narrow view that I'm stuck in most of the time. Well, I... 
and that's where that's where I'm 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 really early on on this. Well, you got to walk me through some of this. I, I finished your book like three days ago, which is not nearly in time to find someone to do the exercise as you outlined. Which I got to be honest, where I live here, that might be a, a tall order. Yeah, <laughs> and I um, understand. I I live I live on a. It is very different where I live. You know, but, everybody around here calls themselves Buddhists. Okay. Okay. Well, there you go. Yeah, I can see that. Um, the uh, um, I'm still digesting a lot of what I read, and I, I have always been the other way. I mean, you know, two Christian seminaries. I find the intellectual part easier than the metaphysical state of experience. Um, yeah. And yeah. Um, if there were, obviously, it's it's a very uh, in some ways, a very Western way to think of it, but you know, I'm thinking, all right, how can I do this by myself? You know, it's, it's um, I'm, I'm looking, I'm looking for. I tried to figure out a way to do that exercise by myself, and I attempted it a couple of times with absolutely nothing, nothing at all. To, so the um, exercise you're talking about is a particular way that um, Hamid discovered is a way to experience your own divinity by going into your body and evoking one of 35 characteristics of God that appear as a particular color or and often a particular shape inside your torso or your head or your neck. And it's a very um, uh, uh, powerful way to recognize your own divinity and to, and to believe in it in a certain way. But it's also... a um, even though it's uh, apparently universal and anybody can do it, it's hidden. It's hidden away from everybody because we we have a parasite called our superego or our inner critic that doesn't want us to see it. Right. So the superego or the inner critic, uh, the voice that tells you you're not worth anything, the voice that tells you you're not good enough or that you're unlovable or that you're about to get fired or that you really shouldn't be trying to write your memoir, who's going to read it, that kind of voice that we all develop um, in our childhood uh, has a lot at stake, mainly its own existence, if you discover that you can operate without it, that you have internal support that... Uh, doesn't have to be religious kind of divine it can just be oh i'm born with it and it can feel quite substantial and beautiful and i call it divine because that's an easy word for it but it's just it might just be being human is having this and the, my superego my inner critic doesn't want me to see it it is it is uh difficult to the point of pretty much impossible as far as i can tell to do it alone. So you're not alone um, in that. Uh, I pointed out in the book. You did. Uh, and, and it's it's why for at least 25, I'm pretty sure Plato knew about these. He kind of hints at this kind of view of, of being, a, being a person. And the Sufi knew a few of the, a, a little bit about this. Um, but for something that's so simple and available it's very very difficult to reach um and and uh it's been hidden for thousands of years essentially um the fact that hamid or h almas as he writes um uh stumbled into it is 
probably based on the fact that he happened to have a Platonist uh, kind of practice where he sat with another human being together in dialectic and just in talking and trying to discover what they could find out about this thing that they had stumbled upon that most people call presence, which is the the weirdness, the weird things that start to manifest when you stop paying attention to the past and the future and just let the world be as it is and get engaged with it. And so people tried to do that through meditation and through um, other forms of concentration on the present. Uh, and it happened that unlike most people, um, Hamid and his his uh, partner in crime in this um, engaged a conversation with each other while they both descended into presence and trying to ignore the past and the future and their belief systems and see what would show up all on its own. And these things emerged. So the the fact that it takes two people is uh, undeniable. And uh, the fact that it wasn't seen uh, for many years or for thousands of years wasn't wasn't found for thousands of years when it was probably available uh, is probably because hardly anybody ever studies uh, 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 with one other person in an engagement with uh, without boundaries and without a text. Oh, absolutely. I, that's I mean, I, I have uh, well, first of all, I want to say that even though there were things I, I really had trouble getting my head wrapped around. And I know you're not supposed to get your head wrapped around some of the stuff we're talking about. But I found a lot of, and this this phrase is loaded, but practical wisdom. And the things you just mentioned, the overarching idea to turn down the volume of our own self-defeating inner voices and you know work those things out of our consciousness and discover what we can become without those loud voices. And also, um, the process, if I understand correctly is to find that inner value apart from external affirmation is that that's sort of that's that's beautifully put um probably much much more pithy than i tend to be and i appreciate that it is it is our curse that we go around with this shell uh, that has our our glossy um attempt to be approved of by others uh, that we show off to the world um, and that replaces our ability to live out of a sense of inner support and inner wisdom and inner um, uh, acceptance. And so every time I'm going out trying to get the appreciation or approval of another person, I'm hollowing myself out, essentially. I'm, I'm ignoring the me that already has perfect value that was born with perfect value and replacing it with a, a kind of sense of depression, right? A sense of meaninglessness and uh, a, a sense of uh, um, existential uh, emptiness. And uh, it's, uh, it's just the way people are. The, comedian Duncan Trussell says, oh, when you meet me, you're actually meeting my bodyguard. And I, I just think that's right. Mm. That's that's what we're doing. We're, we're, we're entering into the world quite defensively, all of us, um, with a projection of who we want other people to project onto us. And it's just weird. We're a bunch of projections talking to projections. 
and we get pretty far away most of the time from being able to talk about who we actually are, with one major exception, which is we complain a lot. And as human beings, we're, we're, we're most of the time we're interacting honestly and genuinely with other people, it's to complain. And uh, life is absurdly difficult for, you know, those of us who are stuck living in an industrialized civilization where we live next door to n uh, strangers and uh, grow up with a default of distrust. And so we're bound to complain a lot because we complain in order to rid ourselves of the complaint. So whenever we're complaining, one way or another, we're kind of entering or trying to enter the world of compassion, because compassion is the love that rises in the presence of suffering. And so when we complain, we're basically saying, I'm suffering, listen to me. And the appropriate answer to I'm suffering is always tell me more. And uh, it's never, oh, I've had that too. Most people think sympathy is uh, necessary when somebody's complaining to you. The problem with sympathy is it be, it puts me, the, the sympathizer, at the center of the picture and removes the center of the picture from the person who's honestly trying to disgorge a, a suffering by complaining about it and venting and letting it out into the air. I have but, to say that's an exceptionally powerful phrase. And that part of the book, I'm still chewing on that, that whole idea because I, I see uh, so much connection, not only with my own uh, issues or however else you want to define it, but with, with dealing with other people. And I've actually tried it out a little bit already. And it's amazing what it unlocks when you just let people talk it out. I mean, I've done counseling with folks. I've counseled folks. And most people know what they need already and they just never get to that point because somebody offers to help or cuts them off or something. Yeah. But that, that place in your book, that was one of my favorite stories in your book about, you know, your experience with that and how it really helped you. Yeah. I, it, um, I tell my client, I have a, I have a, a private practice and I do workshops and I tell my clients that my job is to, uh, torture people because I, I make people, I remind people of their suffering because most people and and their individual suffering so it's true torture i mean it's you know tell me tell me a way in which you constantly replay bad events in your mind right and i might make somebody sit in that question over and over and over again for 5 minutes which is a long time to be stuck in your own suffering and the reason i do that is uh, going into your suffering is the only uh, efficient and expedient way I know to get out of the suffering. What doesn't work is trying to fix it, trying to avoid it, or trying to deny it. They just don't ever work. And they're what everybody is taught to do. And what that means is that everybody is giving short shrift to their suffering. They're basically saying, I've got 20 seconds to fix it, avoid it, or deny it. 
And if I can't fix it in 20 seconds, then I'll deny it. If I can't avoid it in 20 seconds, then I'll start an enterprise to fix it, which basically means displacing it for a while and doing something else. If you, if you sit with your suffering for five minutes, you actually have a chance. Yeah, I, that just, I mean, again, I, I, I don't want to harp on this too much, but that uh, that's the one thing that I think, like I said, I just just finished the book three days ago. That's the one thing that, well, that's not the only thing. That's one of the things that continues to resonate, and I've been working out in my head a lot of that. You know, my spiritual tradition, even though it's sort of in a deep demolition, deconstruction, is still overwhelmingly Western. I have read Tolle, and I've read Ram Dass and Alan Watts, and... I find your book it seems to extend to a place that's more hands-on and more visual experiential. And I, I, I seem to be stuck in my head. Um, I thought I was pretty much in tune physically because I'm very physical. I work out, I box, I run, I do all these things. I thought I was in tune with my body. But reading some of this, I realized there's places I don't seem to even be visiting, much less finding a way to be in touch with. Yeah, um, um, the first thing that I tell people is there's nothing wrong with your head, right? Being in your head is fine, right? Your head is the place where you get to play, right? It's the place where you get to pick out your variables. You get to be curious in your head. Curiosity is the head, right? And then you bring it down into your torso, into your body, the, the variables you want to play with. And your body has the capacity to figure out how to solve the solve the puzzle. And I know that sounds weird, right? You think that your head is all your analytic and um, uh, uh, powers are, are somehow taught and managed through your head. Well, you can do it that way, but you can also uh, rely on your body to remind you at the very least of your capacity to do things. I'm, I was a completely uh, head-oriented person um, as a rationalist. And uh, I didn't notice something that I think uh, anybody can find fairly quickly. And that's that in the end, when, when you realize that what you're really looking for at any one time is how objective or truthful you are, uh, or how objective or truthful the picture that is emerging is, what you're really in most of life doing is looking for truth. When you realize that, even if truth is just, uh, you know, put how do I best put a cotter pin together to secure this gate, right? No matter what, how trivial or how uh, important truth might seem to you at the moment, what what you haven't noticed is truth lands. And that landing feeling of, oh, yeah, now I get it. Um, is actually happening happening to everybody every day a bunch of times, and they're not paying attention to it. So what I one way to start noticing your body is notice how you notice how when you're in tension with a partner, and then all of a sudden you figure out what your partner actually is saying. What's that feeling? That feeling is a feeling of landing up. Oh, right. The breath goes out. There's a little bit of a feeling of uh, 
heightened energy in the shoulders and the chest maybe, or maybe you don't even notice that. All you notice is there's what we call a feeling of landing, right? Truth always requires that, important truths always require that to accompany them. Otherwise, you're going to distrust your decision and distrust and, and be skeptical of whether you made the right decision. But there are times in your life when you knew you were making the right decision and, and if you looked for it, you would notice, oh yeah, I had a feeling of landing before it. I want to talk really, we don't have time obviously to dive too deep into it because it's, it's, it's not um, something you can just reduce to a couple of paragraphs, but I did want to at least mention the, the big five body form identifications, joy, strength, will, power, and compassion. And just see if you could kind of walk me through a little bit of those. Uh, how, just to give people an idea that might want to read the book, what we're talking about here, these, these body forms like joy, for example. Give me an example of how somebody would experience that. Okay. So uh, joy, which, as I mentioned before, is the same thing as it's simply the bodily feeling, the effervescence that accompanies wanting something or being curious about it. They're all the same thing. I want, I'm curious, I'm joyful. They're all the same thing. Think about, um, try this experiment. You, in, you walk into uh, a Ben and Jerry's or your local ice cream shop and you, you do your usual thing. You look through the bins or look up on the wall and then look through the bins and back on the wall, see what they've got today, see what flavors they are. You imagine each of the flavors. You go through the bins and go back and forth and, and eventually you narrow it down to two or three flavors and eventually you narrow it down to one flavor. Now walk out. So at that point, you've experienced curiosity, I want, and joy. You've probably gotten about 80% of the joy out of uh, having an ice cream cone, which mostly comes from the selection. Less of it comes from the actual taste. The taste is really just sugar, primarily, maybe with a little bit of a fruit taste or some distinct taste. You think you're getting everything out of the taste, and no question the taste offers you a different experience from the mental process of picking it out. But you'd be surprised, not just with having saved calories, but also how much satisfaction of the unrequited curiosity. So the, the, what's, what's, what the book is about is discovering that you carry an unbridled curiosity tucked into yourself at all times. So if your parents told you curiosity killed the cat or you were inclined or told to take the risk-free um, uh, choice at all times and you feel like your curiosity is constrained, you can actually go find your curiosity through a, 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 a process of um, encouraging it to appear as an object inside you. Um, I can I can describe that if you want. Um, well, uh, one thing I wanted to, I mean, it, it's it's almost like you're saying that some of these things are innate, but we've somehow lost the ability yeah. to connect with them. Is that yeah. fair? Yeah, that's exactly right. We don't we don't know that we have. We think we are a bunch of issues, 
right? We think we're a bunch of deficiencies that we have to make up for, and then we're pretty good at certain things, but there are a lot of things we really got to worry about, and we call those issues. Um, uh, uh, I'm not a good listener, or I'm not good at sports, or God, I wish I was a better mother, or God, I wish I was a better son, or God, I wish I was a better lover, or God, I wish I was better this or that or this or that. And we never stop and ask, are we actually adequate? Are we born adequate? Are we, if I, if we, can we find that we have the support for that issue inside us and that we're at least average at that and maybe we don't need to be better at it and maybe we have enough oomph built into us. And so this allows you to visit the oomph, the mojo that you're actually, that's in there that's been uh, masked by uh, uh, a bunch of social beliefs that you have to be better and the have to be in, in self-improvement all the time. Well, so okay, these, are, these are um, all related to the most basic, these, these supports that you can find inside are all related to the most basic issues that people have. So the issue of if I'm not curious, well, you can find a yellow curiosity in you. A, an issue a lot of people have is, um, I just feel like I'm, I, I don't have any willpower, right? I feel like I, ha I procrastinate too much. I feel like I don't finish my projects. I feel like I give up on the hard things too easily. Almost everybody thinks that about themselves. Well, it's actually not true. If you, if you actually think about it, you get almost everything done. And if you put certain things off that are hard, you're getting a whole lot of stuff done in between because we just have these impossible jobs of maintaining all our stuff as civilized Americans. So if you have that feeling of I'm, I don't have enough willpower, I have to fake it in order to look like I'm steadfast. I have to, boy, look, those other people over there, they, they, they've got it, I've got to fake it. Then you can go inside and through this practice that you can do with another person who simply asks some open-ended but slightly pointed questions, you can discover that like everybody else, you have a white mountain sitting in the bottom of your um, belly that is as big as Everest and that represents your willpower and that all you have to do is notice it and your, your, your steadfastness will be available to you. Now, it's not magical thinking because it doesn't mean it'll solve everything for you. You won't suddenly magically stop procrastinating. But you might start wondering why you call yourself a procrastinator if you've got this mountain of willpower available to you, and maybe you're not a procrastinator, maybe you just are scared. So almost all of our incapacities are simply a fear that we're not good enough. The only person who's telling me I'm not good enough is my inner critic, my superego, who is a parasite, isn't me. Myself, who has a white mountain of willpower, steadfastness, or just universal will inside, my white mountain self would never, ever tell me that I'm a procrastinator or that I'm, I don't have the capacity to be steadfast and finish things. 
It just wouldn't know how to. It likes me, right? It likes being me. It likes my ordinariness. It likes my empathy. It likes the fact that I can see myself in you and in any other person. It's not grading me. It's not rating me. And all of a sudden I notice, wow, I've got a full belly. I'm not going to die of exposure tonight. And I'm not getting beat up by a mugger right now. I actually don't need anything right now. I'm fine as is. And it can remind me, the support inside me, that it isn't a catastrophe about to happen. Life isn't a, a series of threats. People aren't deserving always of initial distrust. And that, in fact, if I quiet down the little voice barking at me to distrust everybody and to be threatened by everything, I can notice that uh, I have strength and willpower and curiosity and compassion and power fully built into me. And they've been there since I was born. I just didn't notice them. Well, I, not, I, I mean, I lived out of them until I was about four, but I haven't noticed them since I was seven. So recognizing the manifestation of these things, that leads me to the next thing. Colors are assigned to each form. Now, this is where, oh, uh, just pretend I'm a complete idiot and walk me through how this works, because at least on first read, it's not a simple concept for me. Yeah, it's not. It, it, you have to experience it. But it, the experience is, um, so I'll play both parts. So somebody comes to me and says, uh, uh, I've got this issue over feeling, um, uh, I just can't get things, I can't do things. I'm not very good. I don't have a general sense of my own strength and capacity and ability to discriminate things well. And I think I'm kind of dumb and I'm kind of weak. And so, um, I ask them to close their eyes, take a couple of breaths, and uh, look around inside their belly, their um, neck, or their head, and look around for anything sticking out. And usually they find a piece of tension sticking out. It's usually in the, uh, in the jaw, or in the throat, or in the um, solar plexus. It can be anywhere, but those are three common places. And then I ask, okay, how wide is that uh, feeling of tension in your solar plexus? Oh, it's two inches wide. How tall is it? Two inches. How thick is it front to back? Two inches. Does it have a shape? Well, it's kind of a blob. Okay, so you got a two by two by two. You got a two inch in diameter blob sitting in your solar plexus. What's it made out of? What's its density? Oh, it's kind of gelatinous. What's its color? Oh, it's kind of gray. I mean, it, I'm speeding it up, but this is all I do. Right? Are these are these people who have already done a lot of inner work, or they're just no, coming in no, cold? No, no, and... no. They're my they're my completely rationalistic, non-spiritual, hates woo-woo thought okay. uh, brother. Right? Okay. Well, well, I can do this with anybody. I can do this with. I know you think you're no good. Everybody thinks they're no good at finding things inside. Believe me, I can find the thing inside with you every single time. And all of my clients come into me and say, oh, I'm no good with inner work. So, but, you know, I don't know, I don't know my body. And I'm, I'm like, this has nothing to do with any of that. All you need is me to say, how wide is it? And you'll find it. And then 
so the first object that appears is kind of lumpy and gray and brown or whatever and usual. And then you stare at it, and that's actually your belief that you have an issue. And I don't necessarily, and you don't necessarily know which issue you're looking at. Could be any of your issues. But eventually, just by staring at it and kind of turning it over in your mind, it'll disappear. The next object that appears after you wait a little while will um, appear in a number of different ways, but often simply you'll, you'll notice that in this area that you were looking at at first, which, which is kind of like a snow globe, it kind of magically moves your organs out of the way temporarily through your vision or your feeling or your sense of touch inside, moves it out of the way. And so all you're focused on is an empty space inside your torso um, or neck or, or head. And um, the next object that appears might just be a color, right? It always has a color. And each, each of the um, characteristics of God that are the divine or yourself that they represent has its own color. So if you see a yellow, um, if you see that snow globe carved out space turn yellow, you know you're in the presence of, oh, your support for your own curiosity. If you see if it's red, you know you're in the presence of the support that you have inside for your own strength and ability to do things and discriminate things. If it's green, it's your capacity for compassion for yourself or for others. And um, they have a feeling of well-being. Um, they carry with them a sense of uh, uh, nothing being wrong with the world. But their true power comes the fifth or sixth or tenth or twentieth time you've evoked one of them through this practice when it suddenly starts to come clear that maybe that's who I actually am is a collection of these support systems that are simple and colorful and that can hold me up and remind me that I, I actually am perfectly capable of living in this world happily. Well, I, I, I was, it's funny because I, my, I, my natural cynicism kicked in and I was just talking to my wife about a little bit who's very intuitive and I just went through a little bit of ask. She was, something was going on and I asked her, well, do you feel that's in a certain place in your body? She identified it, a shape. I mean, without even reading your book or us even discussing it, she could talk about all those things. So it's kind of an interesting, how quickly she picked up on a concept that I, I hadn't even really started talking to her about. You know, I just sort of guided her when she was saying that. I said, well, does it, do you know where it is in your body? She said, yeah. I said, do you know what the shape is? And she identified a shape. And it was just amazing that, her, so that sort of switched a little bit of my uh, cynicism around on it. Um, I also really appreciate the uh, the way you expound on gratitude. Uh, you you kind of redefine some pieces of gratitude. How is gratitude misunderstood, and why is it such a valuable path? You think? Yeah, I I, I actually get to gratitude solely through grief. I think that grief is what's misunderstood. I think that grief is. Um, usually conflated with anguish and anguish i think is a temporary state at the immediate uh 
information or immediate communication of the uh, loss of someone or something that uh, you cherished, right? And it's natural and it's human and it can last a while. Um, you don't have a lot of control over anguish. Anguish just shows up. Um, I could I could get uh, I could get people angry at me by saying that most sense of loss is misplaced. That everything changes, and so most things that you think are loss are simply changed. But you don't need I don't need to to go to that place to notice something very interesting that happens next, which is when anguish starts to move away, gratitude almost always fills in that spot. So gratitude is noticing who has brought you here. And who has brought you here include your enemies, your friends, your parents, your all the people you cherish and all the people you hate. Um, they've taught you, the people who you hate have taught you a lot more than the people you cherish generally. Um, you've learned your, uh, what to, wh where your defenses got you in trouble from the people you hate. Um, you've learned uh, how to open yourself to a certain kind of love from the people you cherish, but generally not the kind of genuine love that is uh, flowing through everything at all times. Most love that most people talk about is conditional and is quid pro quo and is transactional and is like a rom-com. You know, you got to get the needs right before you can get the love right. Um, I don't personally believe love's like that. I think that love, if I remove my defensiveness level, be all that's left in my relationship with others. The gratitude, though, um, I'll tell you, uh, when my, uh, I guess the, the biggest lesson I ever had about gratitude was when my dad died. I had used my dad's death. He lucked out. He had one of those 18-month um, uh, diagnoses that he'd be dead in about 18 months. And it was about 18 months. I think those are the luckiest people in the world because they they really get to explore death and they get to come to terms with it. And they're given a fair amount of time. 18 months is a good amount of time to come to terms with death. Um, he did that. And he, he, he wasn't a, a spiritually inclined person to his last breath. He wasn't a spiritually inclined person. He also wasn't, uh, he was a rationalist. Um, uh, he, he had no idea or, real care about what happened after he died. Um, but but he, like a lot of people, he came to terms with all of the loss that precedes the final loss of um, the connection of the body and the spirit. And all those other losses are great, wonderful teachers, because if you're if you're dying they're they they they're more curiosities. So as I watched him dying and learned about dying from him. My dog was dying at the same time. I was, uh, I also volunteered for hospice for a few years right around then. So that was in the middle of it. Um, I was prepared for uh, the anguish when he died. Um, 
but he was so prepared for death and had moved through his resentments and his regrets so completely that uh, anguish didn't ever transfer to me. So that when I was at his memorial service and I was uh, up talking about him and my tears started to flow, I, I got curious when I sat back down at the realization that all of those tears were tears of gratitude. And that maybe the tear part of loss is the movement back into the gratitude part of loss. The wrenching feeling in the chest, anguish part of loss, of course isn't gratitude. But the tear part might be, I don't know. Um, it, it, it certainly felt like that for me. And it also taught me that um, not only is gratitude an appreciation for what has brought me here, um, it's also, as far as I can tell, of all the divine characteristics, the only one that looks in the rearview mirror, that looks at the past. Everything else, love, strength, um, power, death, all those things are appreciated in the presence without a sense of needing um, to have a, 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 an ego that has proceeded through a life. But gratitude somehow accompanies my entire past and my life. And it may be the only um, appropriate and uh, honest and true or divine way to look at my past is with gratitude. And I have to, I, I mean, I have to feel gratitude in the end for everything that brought me here. And because I can't tell, I'm I'm being uh, uh, an arrogant know-it-all when I say that that thing shouldn't have happened to me and I would have had a better life. That's just wrong. That thing should have happened to me and did happen to me and maybe it's why I have a better life. I had a, um, I had a, um, my mom had a schizoaffective disorder and I got entangled in it. It's kind of a mild schizophrenia and um, she was unreliable and I, and it was, I felt that my fraught relationship with my mother was uh, a, a pain and traumatic and all of the sorts of things one says about that sort of thing. Um, as I learned more and more about who I really was as a non-defensive being, I realized that so many of the wonders of my life were brought to me through my entanglement with my mother. I, my, I, I'm pretty sure because I was entangled with my mother, I ended up sitting and and being uh, 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 spellbound by Adyashanti, and my older brother and younger brother didn't. And I ended up being uh, uh, fascinated by the inner critic and, and spending the time uh, it took to get my inner critic out of my head, which my older brother and my younger brother didn't. And that's my mom. I mean, my mom was my teacher for those things. And, and I'm one day after kind of starting to realize this, 
and having explored my fraught relationship that day with my mother, I was driving along, and I think this is in the book, all of a sudden the sky just filled with um, my my mom and these little discs that were kind of a holy uh, halo around all these pictures, like 10,000 of my mom. I had to pull over, I think, on the road because I... And I realized she, they were all bodhisattvas. They were all uh, teachers bringing me or uh, other people. My mom was bringing people into heaven. And that was weird. And it, it, was, it was both peculiar and sh- shifted my sense of who my mom had been forever. Well, and that story kind of talks about is a little bit uh, recalls in your book you write about curating memories, how important it is to we, that we're we're the curators of our own memory. Uh, well, we aren't, we aren't, but our parasite is. Our 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 superego, inner critic parasite curates our memories. Our memories, we think our memories are a bunch of uh, uh, events that truly happened to us when if you if you really look at your memories almost all of them are little moral tales that either have a happy ending or an unhappy ending there to remind us what to do and what not to do in order to uh, progress uh, productively in in the social world and uh, if you try to remember uh, for instance you'll go back to Almost all my female clients have the memory of the time they went to the party in the wrong dress, right? And they got made fun of. And it's just it's just the story of, of uh, entry into the horrors of uh, social ranking. Uh, and what none of them ever mentions is if they were five, six years old when that happened to them, which is usually when the story is told, it might be told as late as eight or nine. They don't remember an hour before that happened, the little girl who was exuberantly anticipating the party, nor oddly do they remember two hours after it happened when at for a four or five year old, it's not retained. And it was, it, it, it kind of got locked into this little place to be used a little bit later in life. But, you don't notice that, no, you weren't traumatized all the time as a child. And in fact, most of the time, you're off in your own world. And you don't remember that because it's useless to your inner critic, which who wants you to believe that um, you're in danger all the time. And so you either, you, you either store memories of danger or you store idealized memories of what could happen if you were a better person. It, it's. I, I heard somebody refer to it once as the soul place. That place that finds the thing behind the thing behind the thing is is, is kind of drilling down to that. Um, what are what are some of the barriers for people to begin the process of the things you talk about in the book? Yeah. Um, so all of the work that I I did and believe made a difference was work on my superego. And so my superego is a construction that appears in everybody, whether you're Senegalese or Indian or uh, American, um, at about six or seven years old. And it's got a function to uh, do two things, to help you in 
um, maturation. So to help you learn the rules, uh, the constraints that you have to live in and in, in as uh, human beings um, who are adult. And it also uh, acts as a surrogate for your parents during your early years of independence from your parents. So the idea is if I carry a little interjected version, a kind of uh, facsimile of my parents and particularly my frowning parents, um, I'll, I'll have uh, the ability to have an internal dialogue when I'm about to cross against the red light. Um, and uh, it works. So at about six or seven, you're allowed or used to be, I don't know if you are, I, it, it, it's kind of weird nowadays and was even with my kids. But when we were kids, when I was a kid at six or seven, you're allowed to walk to school alone. Right. And uh, you, needed, you needed company in your head to replace the parents who would normally have been accompanying you. And so it's a really helpful thing for a few years. But by the time you're 17, uh, you know all the strategies, you've tested all the rules, all the kind of important lessons have been um, uh, engineered into you. And your superego, who is really dumb and isn't sophisticated and only has a few of those rules that it keeps repeating over and over again, um, stays in charge. And the work is to get it out of the way, right? Because, you know, um, you really don't want to be run by the dumb bully in the back of the class, right? So you're really, you're being run, if your superego is running your life, most people's lives are run by their superego, then you're letting um, the dumbest kid in the class run your life. And most people believe, oh, I need that, right? But that's because it's told you over and over again that you're a child and it's an adult and you need an adult around because otherwise you'll be a child. Well, if you remove it or move it to the side, um, you can discover that you're actually an adult and, and you're really good at making decisions and you're actually better at making decisions than the superego is. Also, what happens when you remove it is your sense of... Uh, the childish in, uh, feeling that it that it ingrains also gives you a, a, not just a sense of inferiority in going out into the world, but it multiplies your sense of distrust of others. So when it moves to the side, your appropriate trust of most people, everybody's going to run into con men, and that's a certain percentage of time of the time, but most of the time you can trust other people and have a good time with them and not be defended with them at all when you're in their presence and don't have a inner critic telling you, well, you have to, you have to uh, uh, get their approval or you have to watch out for uh, their disapproval or you have to watch out for their conning you. Those, those messages, when all of those disappear, you're actually able to manage when appropriate, getting their approval if you need to, and uh, not worrying about their disapproval since you almost it almost never happens or almost never counts. Have you found any spiritual practices that help discover how to work through this or towards this? 
it's um, I I don't think it's <laughs> it's funny when you say spiritual practice. Yeah, I know that's a loaded word, but I I, I, I think it, I think they work hand in glove. As the superego moves away, the the spiritual universe enters, and that um, in fact the work only has to be work of removal. So the the work is removal of the assumptions that I need to be governed by uh, an idiot crank who's snarky who sits behind my right ear, right? Uh, The more I remove that assumption, the more the curtains part and I'm able to see that actually the world that I live in right here and now is a lot brighter and colorful and more interesting than I thought. But does like meditation help you see that better or more clearly I'm, that's kind of what i'm getting at i guess yeah so meditation um 95 of the meditation taught 99 percent, is concentration meditation so concentration meditation is about cultivating the ability to stay with bad thoughts the bad thoughts are curated by the superego so when you're doing concentration meditation if you don't have the silly idea that it's supposed to remove thoughts, so forget that. That's never the intent of concentration meditation. There's nothing wrong with having thoughts, and there's nothing wrong with your seeing those thoughts. What you want to use in in concentration meditation toward um, removal or or, or uh, uh, pushing to the side the superego is to notice this, which thoughts are the superego thoughts and which, and and start to recognize what kind of thoughts they are. They're they're usually rehearsing, you know, uh, an imaginary conversation with somebody, or they're list making, or they're the very the bland thoughts of you're not good enough. Um, they're not all of your thoughts. They're they're they might you might have a superego thought every five seconds or every five minutes. I don't know how often for any one person, but they're in there. They're in the mix. And my my work is to to keep your mind keep your eye on those thoughts, uh, whether meditating or just in your in your regular everyday life. And all you have to do is point to the thought as it and go, oh, that's you, that's the superego, that's not me. By separating out the voice of the superego, you start to recognize how ridiculously repetitive and stupid it is. It's really not who you want running your life. Well, how do you curate what you read? I mean, to, to you know, feed your own mind and things, how do you curate? There's so much there and there's so much material. Do you have a process or are you... I don't. I um, I had a long period of kind of comparative spirituality because I was just like my mind was kept getting blown. Um, um, I do have. I, you know, it's interesting when I, I at one point I uh, if you go to shapesoftruth.com and look under my profile picture. There's a, uh, there's a tab that's something about essays. And I list the books that were really powerful for me. And, uh, and that doesn't mean they'll be powerful for you. Um, and it's interesting when I think about it, 
if I had just read those 10 books, I probably would have been in about the same shape today as I am, right? A lot of, a lot of my reading, and I'm not reading very much now, a lot of my reading was, um, was to get to the crystalline thought of a few books. That Eckhart Tolle book, I think, A New Earth. There's nothing better on, um, but um, the Bhagavad Gita, I read over and over again. The New Testament, I read the four Gospels over and over again. Um, I read uh, the Tao Te Ching over and over again. These are books that that constantly um, open up a different view. So every time I read the Bhagavad Gita, it's a different book. Every time I read the four Gospels, it's a different book. Um, well, you, you just mentioned the website, uh, shapesfortruth.com. Um, other than that, your book, where else can people find more about, about, more about your work? That's about it. Um, okay. I'm starting to do workshops, and uh, those are listed. Okay. Um, most of my work now is focused... Uh, narrowly on the work of getting the superego to the side because I just think that's where all the work is is if you get the superego to the side it doesn't matter whether it's a particular kind of uh, world that appears to you it's going to be a beautiful strange at first and present world that will appear that all of the problem is located inside the superego's uh, presence. Well, Neil, I've had fun. I, I enjoyed this conversation. Um, I did, too. I, I'm, I, I apologize for being long-winded and obtuse and obstruse. Well, and, no, uh, you answered my questions, and it's a lot to think <laughs> about there, and uh, um, we'll call it right there, and I'll let you know when. I'm, I'm trying to get five or six done. I've got your four or five before I start the thing. This is a labor of love for me. I don't have sponsors or anything. It's something I do in addition to all the work I do. So um, these these conversations are, and I'm trying to uh, to uh, really give people a pretty broad cross section of of ideas and thought and discussion. And I really enjoy talking to you. Thank you. I, I enjoyed it too. I haven't. Um, I don't get a chance to talk to people about this. Right. I, right. I'm like I'm like you. We just move through life, and and do lovely things. And every once in a while, get to have a conversation about the frameworks around us, and that's fills me with energy and joy. And uh, I really appreciate that. Well and again, the book is Shapes of Truth by Neil Allen. You can get it at Amazon. It's available. You can also go to his website and find out a lot of information. Really interesting approaches to uh, spirituality and, and just thought in general. And I do recommend the book, and I enjoyed talking to Neil. And that's it for this week's Thinking God podcast. Join me next week when my guest will be John Steingart, who was the front man for Hawk Nelson, a contemporary Christian band who a couple of years ago decided that uh, he uh, no longer believed the things that he had believed so many years and announced he was an atheist and he's had a path of spirituality since then. I felt very interesting. So join me again. Talk to John next week on the Thinking God Podcast.